Hello, and welcome to Lens, the podcast brought to you by British Screen Forum. My name is John Gisby, and I'm delighted that you're listening. Hello, and welcome to episode four of Lens with me, John Gisby. If you've listened before, welcome back. And if you're new, this is a series of podcasts focusing on the recent history of public service broadcasting in the UK. In this episode, I'm joined by Lord Putnam from his home in Ireland. We talked about his long involvement in the evolution of public service broadcasting, starting with his campaign to ensure that Ofcom's remit would cover both citizens as well as consumers, an intervention which he describes as probably his greatest single contribution to public life. He went on to argue passionately against the idea we've heard from others that PSB primarily exists to plug gaps in the market. Instead, he regards it as part of the entitlement of being a citizen, and therefore for our individual and collective benefit, which is why also for him the stakes are so high, because PSB in his view is critical to the UK's survival, and at the core of what he describes as our noble purpose as a nation. I am absolutely delighted to be joined today by uh, by Lord Putnam of Queensgate. Uh, his career in the film industry, in education, in numerous board uh, numerous boardrooms, uh, and in Westminster has ensured that he's been at the heart of the UK's creative industries uh, for decades. Um, he's been a deep and passionate advocate. Uh, and deeply involved in the ongoing debates um, around public service broadcasting, perhaps most notably as chair of the Joint Scrutiny Committee for the Comms Bill that created Ofcom, uh, chair of the House of Lords Democracy and Digital Technologies Committee, deputy chair of Channel 4, and as the instigator of a major review into the future of public service television in the run-up to the last BBC Charter. Uh, He remains, and I'm sure will remain, uh, an outspoken champion for the importance of PSB, particularly in ensuring a robust and independent news media, and for the opportunities it creates for social mobility and culture through its educational content. I hope that's a, a reasonable summary, David, of, uh, of your, your thoughts and contributions in the space. Yeah, John, it is. I mean, all I, the only thing I'd add, quite obviously, is I'm my principal role in life at the moment is education. So the educational component of PSB is kind of fundamental. And uh, just worth mentioning, that came up this morning. I was in, involved in a quasi-government discussion on climate change and post, post-COP. Um, and the most interesting thing for me is, A, we're dealing with a situation where young people in schools, uh, particularly young people, are, fright- are climate-frightened. But there is no con- no consequent attempt really to climate inform them. So yep. you've got a really really strange vacuum, which which something like the BBC becomes utterly invaluable in helping fill. Fantastic. Um, in a speech on the BBC to the House of Lords in in 2020, you quoted Edmund Burke. Uh, very much, very notable quote: "Rage and frenzy will pull down more in half an hour than pr- prudence, deliberation, and foresight can build up in a hundred years." Um, no, no more true than the present, I suspect. We have about half an hour, I hope. Uh, we're not going to focus on the rage and frenzy bit, but really the purpose of these conversations uh, is to help the architects of tomorrow's PSB as it evolves into whatever it needs to become, really to reflect on the prudence, deliberation and foresight over the last hundred years as to what's been built and why, what were the policy objectives that uh, that were were aimed to be met, how successful that's been, and really, therefore, the lessons that, that have been learned so that the debate that's coming and ne- probably needs to come, I think there's a, a reasonable consensus uh, that some fairly fundamental thinking needs to be done, can be as well-informed as possible, 
based on the conversations that have happened in the past. And we will we'll be doing further conversations with some of the current protagonists and the innovators around, around what's happening now. But really, we're trying to take stock and get some of the institutional memory that we can contribute to the, to the upcoming debate. Um, so in that regard, I'm going to start with a deceptively easy one. What is public service broadcasting and why does it matter? Public service broadcasting is one of the most happy accidents I think has ever occurred in, in history. And two important things I'd like to say, say, get off my chest right at the beginning. Number one, the present architecture of British public service broadcasting is a conservative party creation in large part. Uh, they, In a way, they, they were stewards of the uh, sometimes uh, sceptical stewards, stewards of the um, the creation of the British Broadcasting Corporation when it when it was actually uh, became into public ownership, they were wholly responsible and rightly responsible for the creation of ITV, which I think had an enormous impact on B, on the BBC in terms of stimulating it, making it less less of the auntie, and they then also were the architects of Channel Four. So the BBC, the Conservative Party's contribution to the architecture of public service broadcasting is absolutely fundamental and from time to time has been opposed by my own party, the Labour Party. Against that, you've got a situation where, and I've noticed this in 24 years I did in the House of Lords, one of the failings of our system is that the party in power frequently behaves as if it's always going to be in power and does extraordinarily stupid things, not thinking about what the ramifications of that might be when they're no longer in power. And I think the Tories have been more guilty of that, frankly, than the Labour Party. The Labour Party is not completely innocent. So what you learn in the House of Lords, and I suppose this is the best of all the, of the, of all the answers here, is the rule of un, unintended consequences, that you do things in haste, which you regret bitterly uh, uh, over a period of time. And in that sense, what is public broadcasting? Public service broadcasting in Britain is something which we accidentally arrived at which we probably ceased, uh, uh, don't, we probably fail to understand the value of, and which we begin to knock at the pillars of at our peril. Because the one thing that's become evident since I did that democracy report is that the issues of truth, truthfulness, misinformation, disinformation, the damage that disinformation, misinformation can do, ought to be so utterly evident now that people should flee in the face of damaging anything that protects truth. And balance. From a policy point of view, I mean, one of, one of the risks of the debate is uh, uh, you immediately get to start talking about institutions and or you start talking about programmes, neither of which necessarily is terribly helpful, um, certainly in the context of policy. And one of the things I'm sure you were very close to the coalface on at the time is the kind of the architecture of Ofcom was put in place and the comms bill came in in, in 2002, 2003. It strikes me a couple of things. Firstly, Define trying to put into legislative language or policy language what we actually mean by the type of content we're talking about. So the sorts of attributes that that Ofcom have been using they've evolved over time, uh, but informing ourselves, stimulating interest in knowledge, reflecting um, cultural identity, diversity, plurality, those sorts of things, and the the attributes of the content itself. But crucially as well, the idea that the viewer is both a consumer and a citizen. And that whatever we put in place kind of needs to balance those two things. How conscious was that choice of architecture, and in a way, those choice of words between uh, consumer and citizen at the time? And how fundamental is that? One is that kind of the keystone of the whole thing? I think, John, the the, the if, if I'm going to write my own obit, 
the most significant thing I think I've ever did, ever did in public life was fighting the battle of the citizen against the consumer. Consumer is is an important fact in all of our lives. God knows I'm a, I, I'm a consumer, but the rights and the role of the citizen have to trump those of the consumer at every turn. And I think that um, in bringing, in making, in, in, in ensuring that Parliament made that choice. Or, or advocating the importance of making that choice is the greatest service I think I've ever I ever did to to uh, to the UK. Uh, in in it, I was eventually extraordinarily well served by Tessa Jowell and and a number of people actually in DCMS. This was achieved, and this is troubling. This was achieved against the will w- wishes of both front benches. That's to say, I was in opposition to the to the Tony Blair government, and I was in opposition to the to to the opposition at the time. It was won through Parliament, as it were, against the head, against the odds, um, because people, interestingly, because people found it extremely difficult to frame an argument. That said, no, no, the consumer is as or as, is as important, or maybe more important than the citizen. They couldn't do it. Now, the problem we struck, which is worth going, it's worth, worth digging back a little into Hansard, the na- the word citizen is not a word that occurred in British in, in British legislative process, uh, it, because we're not citizens, we're subjects, and we had extraordinary problems of skirting around this issue. How do you incorporate the word citizen and the notion of the citizen into the into the legislative architecture? that insists that we are subjects. In the end, it was won, but it was won, again, it was won because no one really wanted to go to the um, dispatch box and say, no, 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 citizens are not as important as consumers. So we did win it. It is a vital win. And when you look at the the hierarchy of of, um, duties that Ofcom has, it still clings on to the fact that the first duty is to the citizen. And then we buttress that with the idea of the public interest test. So the citizen is protected by a public interest test. And the public interest test in terms of the provision of information and education and the things that you promise like your very original question, which I wasn't ducking at all. The, the public interest test sits at the heart of what is public service television. The the other dimension to this, which I'm sure we'll we'll touch on during the conversation as well, is uh, we're not only consumers and citizens. Um, ultimately, we are consumers and taxpayers as well. Um, so somehow this stuff needs to be funded, and in in a way, it strikes me that the debate is triangulated between those three. So viewers and choice, and as new technology opens up, um, the ability for for consumers to have greater choice and the ability to choose what they want and pay for it in different ways versus the citizen and then the funding model that needs to supply the content uh, that needs to fund the content that that citizens uh, citizens want how has that triangulation how does that triangulation shift with prevailing political moods at the time you've got a long, a long span to, to look back on as to how that is yeah. what, are the, what have been the ebbs and flows well i don't think uh, flows is the right word i think it, not so much shifts what you have to shift out of the equation is the personal views of people who are able to, uh, when we're talking about PSB here, the personal views of people who are able to afford to amplify their voices more than that of the of the ordinary citizen. So that's why, so my fights with Rupert Murdoch, which are not personal, because in some ways I, I, I've got enormous respect and admire him. You cannot have a Rupert Murdoch with a set of prejudices and a set of, 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 of policy positions which somehow are, are can, which can dominate British public service broadcasting. They have to be kept absolutely out of that frame. So therefore, you're relying on is, a, is consistent generations of journalists, um, 
programmers uh, who, who again, we're back to the public interest, whose principal concern is the public interest, not their share price, not their, not next year's, not next year's promotion. You hope. Um, but actually the public interest. And public interest needs consistently defending and defining. It can't be defined. The Times newspaper, fine newspaper, it does not operate in the public interest. In the end, it operates in the, in the interest of its proprietor. And that's true across uh, pretty well all of our media. You've got to insulate public service broadcasting from those pressures. That makes, that, that, that makes sense. I mean, it... <laughs> In the in the in the, the, the it strikes me in the conversations that, that we've been having, you end up in one of two models, um, and in a sense, I think this will shape the debate going forward between public service broadcasting, as uh, I think you've described in the past, almost as a kind of noble pursuit. There's a there's a there's a um, a democratization of making sure that content, great content using all the criteria that Ofcom use, is universally available and consumed. The good, popular, and the popular good, all those sorts of things. Uh, versus another model that said that says uh, essentially the market won't provide some things and the market will change over time and therefore the market needs to be substituted. It's really which of those two you solve for strikes me as being at the heart of the political debate as it's unfolded. Is that a is that a fair characterization? I think it is. I mean, the word well, I'm going to introduce a different word into here, which is exploitation. You've got to find a point at which the public uh, are not being exploited. In the provision of their of, of information uh, and 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 frankly, what they need what they need to know in order to live their lives uh, properly, and that's word exploitation very important. So I come out of the movie industry. I know there are some very very fine films made by some very very fine people, but you cannot expect a publicly quoted company, Universal, Disney, Warner Brothers, to act solely in the public interest. They're never going to do that, and you can't, and it's unreasonable to expect them. So what you rely on instead is the integrity of the filmmakers in this instance. And if a filmmaker's got a very good reputation, developed, let's say, over time, you absolutely rely on him or her to defend their their position, their their truth. You What you can't do is say, no, 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 no. It might be a very fine filmmaker, but in fact, our share price will be damaged if you tell your truth. You know, so therefore, we're going to tell an untruth because that benefits our share price. And that's, unfortunately, the position we've actually ar- arrived at which is the protection of share price against the provision of truth. Now, that's a, um, when you come back to the individual citizen and the funding of the BBC, what needed, needs to be laid out to those citizens is a very stark choice. Do you want to switch on your television set or go to your iPad or go to your, or on your mobile phone and go, go to a place where you, you know what you're receiving is as clear, as clear and honest account of what's happening as is available anywhere, or do you, to, do you want to switch on, save yourself some money, but get some individuals, wealthy, very probably extremely wealthy individual or corporate view of what the truth is. Now, that's a very simple choice. If you want the former, it'll cost you more money. If you want the latter, God help you in terms of the decision-making processes that you apply. And from your point of view, obviously, I'm passionate on the, on the news and current affairs agenda, uh, but also as a storyteller and a filmmaker, where where do you draw the lines? Where at, at what point do you say that a genre is no longer in that category, or is it is it the whole corpus? Well, John, I'm going to sound like Simon Pure because I'm, I'm not, but I can. Say I've had any number of opportunities during my career to make movies because someone thought there was a chance to make a lot of money. 
I made a decision many years ago, and I'm not a wealthy man. I can. Uh, I made a decision many, many years ago not to do that. Therefore, what I can do right now, if you, you know, we can run through all of them, I can defend a decision on every single film I ever made. I still, I have some, some misgivings about Midnight Express, which I think probably we didn't think through as carefully as we could. But every other movie, that's 30, 32 movies, I can explain to you what it was about, why we made it, what pressures we resisted, and what I think that film said about being a human being. Now, that's the challenge I think that any journalist has, every journalist in a, in a sense has. Are you, are you adding to the sum of human knowledge and helping us to become the people we could be? Or, for the sake of profit, are you actually ducking those responsibilities and possibly, as I say to my students, messing around in people's brains and giving them ideas and influences, not because they're the right things, but because the person employs you believes that was to be in their interest. These are, these are, I, I'm, I get quite wound up, you can tell. These are moral choices, John. They're what you decide about your own life, who you are, the way you want to see yourself, the way you want to explain yourself, and the way you want to be regarded after you're dead. These are important moral choices, and people cannot duck them and, shouldn't, and really should not seek to duck them. And that, um, that entirely makes sense in the context of the media industry as a whole, we have a unique setup in the UK, which is a, a very highly calibrated system of two state-owned broadcasters, two other uh, major players who provide um, public service uh, remit channels, and then all the commercial operators, and now the platforms and the online companies, and so on and so on and so on, and adding up to this this overall ecosystem, um, which also has public funding at its heart. So it is it is this. It, I guess what we need to, to, to figure out how we calibrate going forward is how all those pieces work as the world changes. One, one very specific question on that is, is, um, is universality. So the, the, the movies that you've made will have the impact uh, that you aspire to on the, on the people who pay to go and see them or, 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 or find themselves watching them on the platforms that they're, they're consuming them on. Uh, but essentially, that's broad, most of the time, there's going to be some kind of commercial transaction. Yep. How important at the centre of the of the public service system is the fact that the content is universally available, essentially free at the point of use, um, uh, and uh, and and therefore gets exposed to all sorts of audiences that wouldn't come across it. And going forward, therefore, how important is it that the institutions or the way that we deliver this stuff has the scale to enable that to happen in the future? Well, in my judgment, the BBC and public service broadcasting generally is every bit as valuable to our well-being as the National Health Service, every bit as valuable, and they should be regarded in exactly the same context. Let's say our emotional and mental well-being relies to an extraordinary extent on the kind of Im images and information we receive. The idea that you can receive or you can be the recipient of really poor information or distorted information and be healthy, I think is a, is a, is a, is a is, is a, it's a, I don't think it's going to work. So I would regard the BBC and and the the elements of Channel Four that require support, and indeed the provisions of of um, uh, of, of responsibility that's placed at ITV. I'd regard those as every bit as important as the National Health Service. So if you question the value of the National Health Service as a universal good, then you might just as well. Then, then frankly, uh, you possibly can challenge can challenge the idea of the BBC as a universal good. But I put them in exactly the same basket. Our emotional and mental uh, well-being is, 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 is a function 
of the way in which we receive the information and the motives that lie behind the people who give us that information. Um, one of the things that we've been looking at uh, in preparation for these conversations um, are the uh, the Ofcom public service broadcasting reviews over the years. So uh, Ofcom charged every five years with um, essentially on behalf of Parliament assessing the health of the system. Um, if you if you if you read all of them back to back over the course of an afternoon, uh, I think it's a classic case. Um, of, uh, of potentially overestimating what might happen in the short term, but underestimating what might happen in the long term. The the the, the PSB one review, which I think was back in two thousand and four, um, technology is going to lead to more choice. It's going to lead to fragmenting audiences, which are going to undermine the business models. Which means there's less money for content. Which means the institutions are going to be in trouble. Um, BBC should be looking at subscription. Channel four is probably not sustainable. Three and five need to adjust their remit, and we need to have a you know we need <clears throat> by the time we have the next re, the the the, uh, the next one of these, um, there's going to be massive change. And each successive one afterwards, uh, essentially, actually, it hasn't happened as quickly as we thought, and things are more robust than we thought. And actually, these this 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 system is more robust. Um, having said that, it feels as though we're coming up to a moment. Uh, where some of that will change, either because uh, viewer pressure gets such and viewer choice gets such that the sort of social contract around the funding mechanism and the license fee uh, in return for viewing that some people will start to want to opt out of, and the technology enables people to opt out and new services to come up and potentially for things to come under subscription. Um is the is the next charter renewal coming in twenty twenty seven at that fundamental moment? Is it is it another another Pilkington, another beverage, another Peacock Report type moment where we actually need to kind of sit down and look at the thing from scratch? Well, I, do, I think we constantly have to, to review it. But if you accept my premise that the BBC is, for me, on a par with the National Health Service, I mean, we know we pay for the National Health Service. No one pretends the National Health Service is free. We all pay for it. We pay for it as taxpayers. So I don't actually see, if you accept my, the premise, that I, that's the way you deal with that, with the funding model. There's another factor that people, I think, tend to overlook, which is the BBC... And I'm, I'm using the BBC really as, a, 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 as PSB, but the, the BBC, broadly speaking, is the gold standard for production for production standards. If the quality of presentation, let's just say the quality of presentation, I live here in Ireland, so I do see a, di- a difference. Quality of presentation, the quality of drama, the the, the cost, the, the money that goes into drama, and the care that goes in, into documentaries. If you reduced all that by twenty percent, you could save quite a lot of money. And what happens is that the, the commercial competitors, sometimes quite unwillingly, are forced to spend more money on their content simply because they're competing in a, in, on, 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 on ground that's been laid by a BBC, a BBC gold standard. And I, took, I think this is something that's really, really frequently not understood, that the quality of what we listen to, the quality, I'm including radio here, quality of what we listen to, the quality of what we watch is in a sense subsidised and it would suit many of the commercial operators by removing that product, that, that that subsidy to actually l- loosen or lessen their costs and their, and their quality. So the BBC is our goal, our quality gold standard. Start messing with that, everything. Be, I promise you, everything will begin to to, to an extent at sink. Um, that first thing. Secondly, innovation. Uh, I don't think the commercial world are natural. In my experience, are not natural innovators. 
they tend to look at what worked. They tend to look at last year's hit, and they tend, and that's what you get. Uh, you tend to get replicated. The BBC must be given and does have the space to innovate, to do things we didn't expect. Sometimes, as uh, you could strictly come dancing falls under that category, the Attenborough, the amount of money and investment in the early Attenborough programs was quite unique. I was at. I was at uh, Anglia, and I was actually chairman of Survival Anglia for a good number of years. Uh, there's no way in the world that we could or we could ever have persuaded our shareholders, as they were, to invest in the survival programmes to the extent that BBC were investing in Attenborough. We were always going to be uh, – we were going to limp in second at, at best. Just we could never have done it. I couldn't even get the Anglia board uh, and the shareholders to agree to have a training scheme for future uh, natural history filmmakers. I mean, that's, and, and these things are, um, frankly, the things that people don't wrestle with, don't understand. Um, that that BB, we, we, we're so used to the quality pro, of quality programming and the quality of people that come out of the BBC that we we don't quite understand the ecosystem that creates it. So I'm, I'm, I'm very aware that I'm wittering on here. I think the most important point I've made, and I will stick with it, is I heard a conservative uh, uh, minister the other day, not long ago, refer to the fact that we had a kind of natural, a national obsession with the National Health Service, and that it had become a religion. We said, I think if that's that is the case, that's a pretty good religion to worship at. The idea of universal care uh, is is not a bad religion, and I would place into that same religious basket the uh, the notion of the provision of public service broadcasting. We may come back to this. <laughs> may come back to this uh, later on. I mean, I, I think the challenge is sustaining that um, over the course of time, and particularly the funding model. But, but John, um, no, no, I've got to interrupt you. Is there a, is there an enormous challenge in sustaining the NFS, the National Health Service, NHS? Your uh, answer must be yes. Of course. Yeah. So, as a society, we're going to decide: Are we going to keep a National Health Service, despite the fact that obesity erode, erodes it, COVID erodes it? Are we going to keep it? because we see it as a fundamental right as, our, right as citizens. If so, why can't we make the same decision about the provision of information and entertainment? Uh, I suspect it's the challenge on the public purse and, and the, political, uh, the political will to, to, uh, to move forward on particular policies. Um, I, I want to come back to the, to the idea of, uh, uh, that you, you raised essentially around risk capital. So the idea that um, innovation can, can be done through uh, public purpose institutions in a way that the commercial world won't necessarily do in quite the same way. One of the themes that's come into the debate, particularly in the course of the last five years, um, has been the importance of PSB at the heart of the creative economy. Um, mm -hmm. And as the as the idea of the creative economy has, has uh, grown in importance and as the contribution of the creative economy has grown in importance, the role, in a sense, of PSB commissioning budgets um, in, in priming the pumps um, and in providing some of the skills uh, and technicians um, that are then going on to build the studios that yeah. uh, are now massively full with uh, with imminent investment from the streamers. Um, how has that evolved and how, how important is the PSB pillar um, in that creative economy? Well, when I was doing the PSB review and prior to that, when I was working with Bob Phyllis on looking at um, alterations to Channel 4 remit, uh, Tessa Jell, who I think is still was much loved but actually underrated, uh, put her finger on it. She said that the license fee is the R and D of the creative economy, and she's right. 
It's the, it is the R&D investment, the creative economy. So if you're like, the, you know, under the, the plans under the Cameron government to put serious money into the into Oxford, Cambridge, in, into, into research and development in life sciences and various other areas, just as it's a perfectly sensible investment for government to invest in R&D and science, it is a perfectly sensible investment for government or central government to invest in, um, in the creative industries. And God knows we've paid back enough. I mean, you know, John, I can jog, jog back to, you know, the phrase, the creative industries actually uh, was drawn up in my house. I can say that. Absolutely. <laughs> there were four people sitting there and we came up with the name of the creative industries and it was not a popular name. We, we came under attack early on, on the, from the idea that somehow we were tying creativity into some, in, you know, industrial complex. It was not a popular phrase. Under Chris Smith, we, we managed to, uh, to, get, to get it accepted. But, um, it, you know, creative economy was reckoned to be 1.8% of GDP in, two, in uh, sorry, 1992, 1.8%. We did a we commissioned a document which proved that actually it was much closer to two point eight percent. Today, I you'll give me the accurate figure. It's very close to five. It may even actually past five. So the creative economy has paid back into UK UK PRC massively, and it's paid back very largely on the basis of the R and D supplied by the license fee. That is. I think unarguable. I've never yet heard anyone actually mount a serious argument against that against that thought. Um, again, we're going to look backwards slightly uh, and, and just talk about opportunities that have been missed along the way. So, one of the and and, and not with any sense of, of of kind of hindsight and regret, but more uh, if they were significant opportunities that were missed, why were they missed, and how do we stop them getting missed in the future? Um, so, from from your point of view, what are what are some of the things that got away? Okay, so I'm, the, the lovely thing about being old uh, is that I've got a memory that goes it goes stretches right way back. Um, Alistair Milne, the BBC, when he was director general, wanted to put up a satellite, and was told by Margaret Thatcher he may not. So this would have been very early on in the uh, so she did not want to, want the BBC putting a satellite up. Despite the fact that she then, I think, manipulated she and her colleagues manipulated the situation whereby the sky satellite was 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 created was made legal, as it were, in, in the UK. Uh, another big, big, terrible missed opportunity was the with the idea we worked on the Channel Four and ITV and BBC for a for a platform, a, share, a, a streaming platform, that was in the end for no reason at all or no good reason rejected by Ofcom because Ofcom and this is a classic British failing. Ofcom saw it in terms of its, its its position in domestic competition. Ofcom totally failed to understand that this was an international uh, this was an attempt to turn our British British programming into an international um, opportunity. So we could have done exactly what Netflix did. We lacked the will, and we lacked the, we lacked the regulatory uh, green green light to go ahead and do it. Those two opportunities between them, and there have been a number of others in between, those two were terrible, terrible policy failures. I, I still have the scars on my back from Project Kangaroo. Um, so, <laughs> me too. More, more hours spent, believe me, in the Channel 4 boardroom discussing Absolutely. Project Kangaroo than almost anything, almost anything I've ever worked on, really. One of the challenges, it, it gets back to the kind of geography problem, which is that when you've got national broadcasters in 
um, a, a beautiful, but still, you know, it's a fairly small rock in the North Atlantic um, at the end of the day. Um, national broadcasters who are competing against global companies who have one platform for the planet. Um, there have been, there's been all sorts of talk of partnerships over the years as to why couldn't, why couldn't the industry come together and share more and do more and create more together. And for various reasons, things have got, on, got in the way of that. A kangaroo was, was, was one noble attempt. What have been some of the obstacles? I mean, I think you've, you've talked in the past as um, uh, the BBC having the ghost of autocracy and an inability to partner, uh, which I think was specifically around the concept of the, the, the sharing of regional news infrastructure. What have been some of the lessons learned about why partnerships have been difficult to do in the past? And if they're necessary in the future, or if that scale is more necessary in the future, what are the lessons to be learned? Well, I, I still believe that there's something in the DNA that makes it, a, a, in the DNA of the BBC, that makes it an unwilling partner. It, partnership, the BBC seems to be the, the last resort, not 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 the first uh, first thing you, you, you go to. Uh, and I do think, I don't know what that, it, it, you know, companies, organisations and institutions do have DNAs, and that seems to be in the, in the, in, in the BBC's DNA, and it needs to shed it. Um, I think partnerships can be valuable. Uh, I think it it depends on the terms of those partnerships, and it depends on who really, in a way, has the clout. I mean, I've got I was involved I think, over the years with at least three attempts to partner. One of them, Channel Four, to partner with the American major studios to to, to make films. The problem is we never had sufficient clout in those partnerships to actually grasp the thing we really needed, which was access to distribution funds and, and sorry, distribution re- receipts. We were always, in a sense, no matter how generously you've painted it, we were always net recipients. We were never gross recipients. Uh, and so in a sense, it was our, it was our, the poverty of ambition in terms of distribution that prevented us from, from frankly moving forward. There are a lot of lessons we could have and should have learned from the French. But because they shared language with the United States, uh, we never had to learn them. Therefore, we ducked them. Which is a beautiful segue. Um, you're immensely well-traveled. Uh, any countries that you've looked at or any systems that you've looked at over the years and either gone, they do it better, or, or there are portions of their system that we can learn from? The one I point to, uh, because I spent a reasonable amount of time, there, certainly pre, pre-COVID, the way that the, the – this may sound odd – the way the Singaporeans go about making decisions – and and adjusting uh, policy and looking and looking across the piece at where other people are doing things right is really a, 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 an object lesson I think in twenty first century policy making. We in the UK and it was always true in the laws. We in the UK assume that the way in which we do things is probably as good as anyone as, as is possible. I don't think that's been true for thirty or forty years, but we still. I'm afraid suffer from the arrogance of believing that our way, our way is the right way. We're not good at, uh, at at looking examples elsewhere. There are things about the German broadcasting system which are excellent, really excellent. There are things about the French, the way in which, manner in which the French protect filmmakers uh, and the creators of films, which are excellent. Uh, many of those we could have, at various moments in time, uh, either copied or done or adjusted our own systems towards them, but always been unwilling to on the basis that, in a sense, I think we believe that we invented television. Uh, and I think we see, even Netflix, we see them as kind of uh, pirates who are boarding a ship that, 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 we, that we built, that we've sailed, that we, know, that we know how to do better than anyone else in the world, and anyone else is an interloper. Uh, and in a sense, I'm now agreeing with you uh, that I think there are lessons we need to learn. There are partnerships we need to forge. Uh, there are ways in which we need to work, which could be significantly better. At the moment, we've got a crisis, and the simple crisis is talent. 
we've got a really, really problematical uh, talent pipeline. Uh, not so much at the very top, but in terms of the uh, the, the the craft grades and uh, the heads of department in production and things like that, we've got a real problem. But because we appear on the surface to be being successful, I found it extremely difficult to get government to take those problems seriously. And a good example of that, uh, we got a good minister, a woman called Gillian Keating, who we spent a fair amount of time, I think, educating and getting to understand the nature of the industry. What happens? She not only gets shifted off into the health service, which I'm sure she'll do very well, but they didn't even replace the job. So, so much, so much for the, the the way in which we managed to convince government that we had a good case. We haven't even got a minister anymore. And again, part of the institutional memory problem is there are there are relatively few people, particularly in in uh, in Westminster, who who have the length of view. Um, Interestingly, yeah. sorry to interrupt you, but I was yeah. in, in this meeting I was in this morning. Andrea Ledstrom, who I've never actually sat in a meeting for and listened to, was waxing absolutely lyrical about the lack of institutional memory in government, and she was making the point that the the the, the, the particularly environment ministry and the, and everything to, to connected to climate change had been seen as a short term career path by civil servants which they moved into, did the job for six months and moved on. And she was saying there is no government memory of the mistakes we've made or the adjustments we should be making because literally everyone's reinventing the wheel every six months. I think that's right. I think uh, I'm sure somebody will correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I don't think there have been, I don't think there's been a Secretary of State at DCMS who has uh, spoken at two successive Royal Television Society conventions. Uh, I'm sure you're right. Uh, just to, just in terms of the turnover, um, you, mean, you mean since uh, since Tessa? Uh, I'm not sure. I'd, I'd need to look back at exactly all the, all the data. But in terms of in terms of somebody who's been there essentially more than two years at any given time, and therefore because they're, they're biannual. Well, um, we don't turn that often, but he was always there as Minister of State. Yes. Yes, and, and one of the few people who have who have that sort of longevity of, of view right the way across the piece. One of the things that um, I know you've, you've been familiar with since since Channel Four days, and as sure as part of your education brief as well, um, the shift from public service broadcasting to public service media. So as we as we get liberated from linear channels and schedules and formats that need to be twenty five minutes long and an ad break and all all, all that kind of stuff, uh, what's impressed you? Um, around the public service media that started to be created, and what implications does that have as we start to think about the content and the impact it has, rather than necessarily the institution that's produced it? Given there are a lot of new institutions who are producing great stuff. Yeah, it's a that's a very it's a very tough question. Um, I think that we did certainly if you allow for the new slots, we have managed to escape from the tyranny of the half hour, one hour. You know that. that it, there has been a certain escape from that, which is, I think, useful. Uh, can I answer it another way? I've been looking, because uh, I'm about to vote for the Oscars and BAFTAs, I've been looking at the short films uh, in both in all categories, and they're unbelievably good. There's some really wonderful work. And it does bother me that we've sort of failed to find really good and consistent slots for people making 12, 15, and 18-minute films. Now, those films can be animated, they can be documentaries, they, and I've been looking at all of them, uh, documentaries, they can be dramas, but they're really, it's fine work. And just as we've adjusted, we've become adjusted to long-form television, I wonder, and I know that Katzenberg, Jeffrey Katzenberg took a stab at this and it didn't really work, we ought to be able to find a, 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 an opportunity for short-form television, if only as a means of discovering new talent and uh, giving people a chance to actually see their work on, on screen. And I think that's that's been, um, yeah, we failed in that. 
John, I've done a I've done a piece of work with my colleagues here. We did a piece of work on the digital transformation of the New York Times. We did a really big piece of work. And over a period of 20 years, largely Mark Thompson, I've got to say, who probably learned quite a lot from John Burt, over a period of 20 years, it's been a most remarkable story, really remarkable story, moving from a, a, a legacy a legacy newspaper that's dying on its feet, frankly, to an extremely vibrant digital uh, and, and, and news uh, offering. One of the most remarkable things in it is New York Times, I think I'll get these numbers right, I, I hope I do, has something like one third less staff than it had in 2020. <laughs> twice as many journalists. <laughs> so it does, what that thought releases in me is that there are other ways of doing things and there are other ways of getting stuff on screen uh, that defy the business models or, the, or tr- the traditional production models, if you like, that we've been accustomed to. Is that, is that a half answer to your question? I th- yes, it is. I think that makes sense. I think um, it strikes me that the challenge, looping back, is the universality problem, hmm. which is my guess is that that uh, that some of the people who've left uh, have been in in the ad sales and classifieds piece, which no longer exists because that model's gone. Um, and actually, what you find is there isn't a it's not a consumer problem; it's been a business model and delivery problem that's needed funding in some way. And and a few players have managed to to, to reinvent that. The challenge is to do that and still have the universality and the the the, the mass reach of audience. Which delivers all the public purposes that we've uh, that we've benefited from in the past, and if, uh, my my sense is that that uh, we'd be very interested in, in your view on this. The, the the evolution of some kind of hybrid world where the best of both works, but that needs some pretty fundamental thought because the, the the blueprint for that doesn't exist yet. Well, I would say that from the point of view of the creative industries and creativity in general, the important thing is to protect the public funded element. Uh, from the commercial funded element, because the commercially funded element will always look after itself. I got a, some feedback from a, a lecture I did the other day uh, from the students, saying uh, basically saying it, the the obsession of the film industry with um, superheroes and blockbusters will that go on forever? Now, my answer to them, which I'm a, I'm afraid probably isn't only half believe, was these things happen in cycles. And the audience, I've, I have been through at least three of those cycles during my career. And the audience does in the end get bored with a certain type of, of product and does begin to look elsewhere. And it's that look elsewhere. Who's going to provide the elsewhere? That's, that's the but what point I would, I, I would consistently make. Where does the elsewhere come from? Uh, we'll draw it to a close. Um, conscious of, of you're very gen- generous with your time. Um, there is a sense, I think, working back from the next charter i mean we've we've had an announcement from the secretary of state um that the this current license fee settlement is essentially the last one um i think others have pushed back on that and says for for all sorts of practical reasons uh let alone whether that's the right uh, the right outcome from a from a policy point of view but for practical reasons that's that that may be challenging but the sense that the ecosystem that that uh, you and others have built over many decades um, will probably face some fairly fundamental change. Finally, the, the 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 frog has been in the hot water for a very long time, but it probably does change um, pretty fundamentally fairly shortly. If you work back from a charter renewal in twenty twenty seven to uh, an election, and therefore manifestos getting written and started to be th- thinking about at some point fairly shortly, it's really over the next twelve to twenty four months where some of that thinking needs to needs to happen. Um. If if you had a magic wand, what's the what's the one thing that the industry could do 
to start getting ahead of that game. Um, John Burson, is, in his memoirs, very famous, says, said, uh, don't let things happen to you. Um, what should the industry be doing now to try and get ahead of that? Uh, and also just interested in, a, a, um, Mark Thompson, actually, in writing in your, uh, in your television reports um, back in 2016, um, PSB will become more, not less important to British audiences over the next day, decade. Political support for PSB is weaker today than at any time in its history. And this growing mismatch between need and supply is the central problem in current broadcasting policy. I think, uh, I think he's. I think he was right then. I think he's right now, and I think it's one of the reasons, in a sense, he was able to do the job he was able to do at the New York Times, where he was able to, re- re- as it were, resuscitate uh, a reputation. So what he went there was he had a he had a product that had a very fine reputation. What he had to do was steer that product with quite a lot of pain into a different into a, a, a different era, and I think that's in a sense what you're you're describing here, and I think that's what the the next uh, around the next review will have to uh, will have to deal with. Uh, I can only go back to um, say, and I feel a track record, but I do I do mean it very sincerely. What we ought to be learning from the examples of Facebook, what we're dealing with with Facebook, that my democracy report, I feel I'm very 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 proud of that report. I think we nailed a lot of issues which are more obvious now than they were 18 months ago when the report came out. Um, if we look at the problems we're trying to solve with Facebook, if we look at the problems, the, the, the issue, for example, in, in, in Ukraine at the moment of matching Amer- of Russian disinformation with Ukrainian information and the way that that's evolving, we've got to come to terms with the value of, of balanced, sensible, um, uh, evidential uh, uh, programming, and I don't just mean—I really don't just mean news. I mean right across the board. Therefore, I think the analogy with the NHS is a perfectly honourable one. You'd, most people could manage to live their lives without having a new hip, but the NHS has taken on the responsibility for creating new hips for us. The, well, I remember the very first MRI machine, literally the first being installed in in the UK. It is now your and my right to go and get an MRI. Uh, scan for something. If we can absorb, as taxpayers, if we can absorb the costs and the entitlements that the NHS has brought us in terms of our physical health, then I would suggest that it is possible for us to looking by looking across at the dangers that we that the world offers in terms of misinformation, disinformation, look, that we should be able to afford the same sort of emotional and mental health for ourselves that comes from feeling we're being well informed. Uh, and and have trusted sources we can go to in making the the really important decisions of our lives. So I think the analogy is not a foolish one. I think that I would be prepared to stand on a platform that said, if you value the NHS, look at what it is you value, read it across to the provision of public service broadcasting and understand exactly what we'll lose if we allow it to slip away from us. And if you look back at the arguments that have been made in the past and the balance of the arguments between, or the relative importance of the arguments between consumer and citizen, going forward, are those two equally balanced? Or is one more important than the other? uh, They're not equally balanced. They're absolutely not equally balanced. The problem is that we insufficiently value our roles as citizens and overvalue our roles as consumers. And in that context, your sense of how much this is understood, the, the enormous affection for individual programs and for the idea of the brands and the BBC and Channel 4 and ITV and all the rest. But in terms of the fundamental understanding of the architecture and the debate and the importance to, the, to as you would put it, to uh, the health of society and democracy and culture and all the rest of it and the role that, that, that PSBs have played in that, 
how joined up is that? You talked in the past around, um, uh, you know, the the. the the, the demonstration on the streets of London that you could bring out would be bigger than the Countryside Alliance. I mean, do, do, you, do you, how, how, how passionately and, 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 and deeply do you think this is shared across the population? I still believe that. I absolutely believe that. I think it's a question of the way in which the argument gets framed, uh, and the, way in, the way in which you can attract public attention to the dangers of losing what we have. I had no doubt at all you could double the size of the Countryside Alliance uh, uh, march. Uh, but people have to become sufficiently alarmed to realize, to understand and realize what it is they could lose. I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it as a last question anyway. Um, if you were advising the current executive leadership going into these this, these reviews and these conversations going forward, uh, you wrote back in 2015. There's a um, there's a danger, or there, there are two ways of doing this. You either go and say this is the vision of the UK that we think we should have to be seriously competitive with these skills. We need these kind of institutions. I'm sure you now add to that um, the, uh, the, the the kind of social and mental health and, and, and all the things that that content brings. And therefore, if you believe that, a bit like the National Health Service, QED, we need something that looks like this. Or you go the other way around, which is that you try and fit it into the gaps and say, government policy looks like this, and this is how we can respond and the role that we can play. Which of those, or is it a bit of both? Uh, I, I think that government policy, it, it is more important that government policy adjusts itself to the fact that in exactly the same way as that you and I know, there is a level, an element of waste within the National Health Service. Definitely. No, no one's ever pretended there isn't. But we accept the element of waste because we know what it is that when we need it, 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 it it's there. It, it's there to protect us. I think the same is true of public service broadcasting, that you've got to accept a level of waste, but you've got to, people have got to focus on what it is they will they will lose. And we're back to the very first thing I said to you about the, the what I learned in the House of Lords. The House of Lords taught me the really important, it, we used to call it the slippery slope, unintended consequences, that you do things that you think are, let's say, in the margins at the time, or look as though they're adjustments to policy, where in fact what you've done is you've kicked away the actual underpinnings of something that was that in hindsight was of enormous value. I don't want to I don't want to Peg, pop, pop my clogs, knowing that the things that actually were fundamental to the very best years of my life no longer exist because of either because of a series of, of inept political decisions or um or actually malign political decisions. I don't know if you happen to read if you didn't I do, uh, my Shirley Williams lecture that I left. Yes, yes. Well, it's all there. I think we're living through dangerous times. We are led by, in my lifetime, the poorest group of, uh, of politicians that I can remember. Uh, and the idea of the what's in the public interest, the protection of public interest, uh, is, is under threat. There was an extraordinary um, outburst from the, the, the ghastly Lord Frost the other day, basically suggesting that there was no such thing as the public interest. The public interest is that we were getting trapped into, uh, in, into making decisions uh, I mean, I, the kind of politics he seems to be advocating, and indeed others in the party, are so abhorrent to me that uh, that's why I live here in West Court. I was trying to explain why why have I left the UK? Because it's actually, it's not that I've left the UK. I feel the country emotionally has left me, uh, and, and I can't feel comfortable uh, in, 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 you know, the, what's really interesting, I'm not just going to use this at all, the fact you and I are having this discussion is in itself troubling. The fact that uh, after all, after 100 years of benefiting from public service broadcasting, we are now having a discussion which questions whether it has value is extraordinary to me. 
just extraordinary. I'm not how uh, we improve it. How how we improve it is a brilliant yep. its existence. And it is is uh, is quite an extraordinary. Uh, I find it well, funny. I don't know if we use this either, but 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 just to kind of take that that thought on a minute, um, I think the challenge is that you you described in a way you describe public service broadcasting as a, as an amazing and lucky accident. Yeah, and it, has, and it and in in that sense, it has been shaped by some visionary people who've dug their heels in over time, starting with John Reith in nineteen twenty two or whatever it was. Um, but at the same time, it's been inexplicably connected. We, we wouldn't have invented it if we'd been better at physics in the first place um, because it was the constraint of the distribution that meant that there was a single, essentially a single channel in the, in the, the, the outset of, of radio and television in the very early days. And what's happening is as that changes and expands, the model needs to change and expand. And realistically, over the course of the next 10 or 20 years, that model changes probably beyond all of recognition, particularly if you look at the, at the viewing behavior and the consumption of the young. But John, that and, scarcity allowed us to be a single people. And I'm not sure we are anymore. And that's I, think you, I do accept the fact that that's the way it's going. And, and therefore plurality means a fragmentation. It's the end. Let's say it's, it's the end of the, of the union. It's a, it, you accept the fact that Scotland perfectly entitled to have its own broadcasting system. Therefore, why does it need to be a part of the UK? So uh, again, you've got to remember, and I make no apology here. I was, I was born 1941. The National Health Service became, came in 1945. I mean, I'm the beneficiary of an ex- explosion of extraordinary, really extraordinary, against the odds, social social developments, f- free free education, free higher education, um, you know, a national health. To start, you you want to start dismantling those. Then you have to ask yourself, who who are you? Are you who are you? And and that's when you begin to question, are you a are, so? I, then you start go back to the citizen versus consumer thing. Am I someone who exists in order to consume the things that I want with the money I've got? Or am I someone who's a citizen and has a certain number of entitlements, which as a taxpayer, I realize I pay for centrally, but benefit from? Those are, this is, this is kind of massive stuff, John. This is not, it's not just about PB, it's not just about British PSB. It's who, who we are as citizens in the United Kingdom. And will the and will the United Kingdom remain a United Kingdom? It's just it goes that it goes that deep. And the PSB component of that, which has been one of the pillars of that, arguably at least, but but in many people's view, yeah. one of the pillars of that social contract, and the, and one of the things that's enabled some of those things to to happen, um, undoubtedly will need to evolve because it always does. And that's where that's why going back to not the programs and not the institutions. That's not necessarily the starting point, but what have been the policy objectives and the policy outcomes? Some of which, if we're honest, have probably been retrofitted, but they've you know we've worked out that that's what's been delivered by the system. If that system, if if the surroundings of that system and the fundamentals of that system are going to go through stresses and strains and political trade-offs, understanding what that what that policy objective was, and therefore designing the evolution to achieve as much of that policy objective. Uh, is critically important, and 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 hence why we're trying to have some of these conversations to understand the context for that, so that hopefully the architects and blueprints uh, going forward can uh, can 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 get to the best possible outcome. 
I think the word you've used there, which is really important, is context. And my concern is the context of, well, of, of many of these discussions is what is commercially viable. Which is why I, I, I kind of teased that out hopefully a bit earlier. You either start with the idea of this is the outcome, yeah. this is the system that will deliver it, and we solve for that. Or you start in the other way, in the which is a, which is your sort of citizen model, and and the um, uh, what has been described in the past is sort of the the, the noble purpose, if you like, of, of of the public service remit. Um, or you start in a different place. Um, my 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 RE teacher, the chaplain at school back in the day, um, said to be wary of the god of the gaps. So you believe in God because all the bits that science doesn't explain yet, you've got to have another explanation. So you just kind of make it up that way. A bit like PSB. The market's going to deliver these bits. It won't deliver those bits. So we'll, we'll have an intervention that solves for that. It's really the kind of tension and, and complementarity between those two models that I think we need to reconcile. I think uh, I, can't, I can't argue with the word that. All I would say is uh, a nation, any nation, Britain in particular, that loses its sense of a noble purpose will cease to exist for certain. So either we recapture a noble purpose or we will become an irrelevance. And that's what I tried to say in the Shirley Williams piece. A pleasure and a delight. Thank you very much indeed for your time. I'm sure this conversation will run and run. We would love to love to involve you in them uh, going forward. Um, so thank you again for your time. Well, I've booted myself well into the margins, but, I, but I'm thoroughly enjoying my life and, uh, and uh, no regrets. The idea, the idea of getting on a plane every week so <laughs> I can't believe I did it for 24 years. There yeah, comes a the time. There comes a the time when, uh, yeah. when that's all done. Look after yourself, John. Will do. Thank you for your time. God bless. Okay. Bye -bye. Thanks. So there we have it. An eloquent, passionate and far-reaching argument for PSB, which places it at the heart of our national life and collective consciousness, and for each of us as individuals, as nothing less than a National Health Service for the Mind. If you want to find out more about Lord Putnam's views, it's well worth reading his Shirley Williams memorial speech on his retirement from the House of Lords in 2021, which feels to me a bit like a plea for the next generation to continue to fight for the causes for which he's campaigned. Which brings us perhaps neatly to our next episode, <clears throat> when we hear from James Purnell. A former head of strategy at the BBC, before becoming Secretary of State of the Department for Culture, Media and Sport, and then returning to the BBC as Director of Strategy and Digital, and then Radio. He talked about PSB as a tool of public policy, one of the levers that the government can use to make things happen, particularly at a time of crisis. He also outlined his belief in its enduring importance at the heart of the UK's creative economy. Here's a little taste of what he had to say. Looking back on the debate over 30 years, one thing we've never really bottomed out is where the UK's strength structurally is in the creative industries. Of course, having lots of international investment into our production facilities is a fantastic thing. And of course, it'd be fantastic if the UK you know, created platforms which were you know, as effective as a Spotify or, or an Amazon or, or Netflix. But I think there's a hard-headed look that needs to be taken at that, which is, is our industrial strength actually around IP creation? And how would we feel if we ended up essentially being a, an outsourcer from the West Coast and from China 
where we produce it, but all the IP goes back to other countries. In in broadcasting, in tech TV, if you're a producer, you've got the choice. You know, you can go to Netflix and you'll get well paid, but you won't keep any of the IP. Or you could go to a regulated public service broadcaster and you'll keep a very significant proportion of your of your IP. So I don't think government I ever saw that properly worked out, what what the balance of advantages between between those two. You've been listening to Lens by British Screen Forum. My name is Pete Johnson, and I'm the CEO of British Screen Forum, where the best informed and most influential people in the UK screen sectors convene to interrogate issues of importance and influence policy and the thinking around policy. This podcast series is just one way in which we help our members frame the debate over the future of the UK screen sectors. If you'd like to find out more about our work or sign up for a future public-facing event, please visit our website, at britishgreenforum.co.uk where you will also find an interactive timeline covering the key events, people and reports discussed in this series. Episodes in this series are released fortnightly and can be found on all major podcast platforms.